Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Allison. And today I've got part two of the Grey Gardens slash Beals episode. I'm excited to bring to you because I have finally watched the documentary. So I can talk about it. But first, let's get to our In the News segment. Big news story of the past seven days. So this is pretty cool. The second annual Earthshot Prize Awards are going to be held at the JFK Library in Boston this year. During the award ceremony, five people who have made significant contributions to environmentalism will be awarded a grant of $1 million to continue their work. The award was established last year by Prince William, who stated that he had actually been inspired by JFK's ambitious moonshot speech to take a leap for mankind by repairing the planet. And uh, Jack Schlossberg even showed his support for the initiative in a series of tweets. This story is via Town and Country Mag. Very exciting. Next up is our inspiring clip of the week. One of the inspiring notes. July 26, 1963 was the day that President Kennedy had a radio and television address on the limited nuclear test ban treaty. And since it was just July 26, I thought I would play that. So here it is. I ask you to stop and think for a moment what it would mean to have nuclear weapons in so many hands, in the hands of countries large and small, stable and unstable, responsible and irresponsible, scattered throughout the world. There would be no rest for anyone then, no stability, no real security, and no chance of effective disarmament. There would only be the increased chance of accidental war and an increased necessity for the great powers to involve themselves in what otherwise would be local conflicts. If only one thermonuclear bomb were to be dropped on any American, Russian, or any other city, whether it was launched by accident or design, by a madman or by an enemy, by a large nation or by a small, from any corner of the world, that one bomb could release more destructive power on the inhabitants of that one helpless city than all the bombs dropped in the Second World War. Neither the United States, nor the Soviet Union, nor the United Kingdom, nor France, can look forward to that day with equanimity. We have a great obligation. All four nuclear powers have a great obligation to use whatever time remains to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, to persuade other countries not to test, transfer, acquire, possess, or produce such weapons. This treaty can be the opening wedge in that campaign. It provides that none of the parties will assist other nations to test in the forbidden environments. It opens the door for further agreements on the control of nuclear weapons. 
and it is open for all nations to sign, for it is in the interest of all nations. And already we have heard from a number of countries who wish to join with us promptly. And for our recommendation segment. Of course, then we would recommend it. Today I'm going to recommend That Summer, which is a documentary kind of narrated by Peter Beard, who you'll hear a little bit about, and about Lee and the origin of Grey Gardens. Very, very good. Go watch it. The whole thing is on YouTube. And again, I'm going to obviously recommend Grey Gardens if you have not seen it yet. So I will put the links to watch those in the description of this episode. Okay, so like I said last week, this week I'll be talking all about the actual documentary Grey Gardens, which became a huge phenomenon. My sources today are The Guardian, Festival Cans, New York Times, The Independent, Grey Gardens Online, The LA Times, and LOC.gov. From a recommendation from a listener, I watched that summer first, which I really appreciate that message that I received telling me to watch that. And it was fascinating. You don't have to watch it before Grey Gardens, but it really does give a lot of context. So just a little bit about that. There is a photographer named Peter Beard, and he's very famous. And I'm going to insert a clip here of Lee Radswell talking a little bit about him and his significance in her life and where they met and all that kind of stuff. So here's that clip. Well, when my sister asked me to come and recover after uh, a big operation uh, to Scorpios and have my own house there and the children, etc., it sounded like the ideal place to recuperate. And she already had asked Peter Beard, who she knew, um, to come and amuse her children with painting, with sculpting, with skiing. They just adored it. His mess was everywhere in the house of his collages, photographs, just all over every floor. And uh, he was always on his knees, gluing or rubbing a pen into his arm to get blood to put on his paintings. <laughs> And then we'd go off at the end of my recuperation and water ski for hours when the incredible heat had gone down. And there were just, it was just paradise because in those days so few boats were around that you had at least a hundred beaches to yourself. When we'd get back to New York, he'd often sleep in his station wagon. He was superb looking and I had a body of a Greek god. It was always the same color tan and always an opinion and an extraordinary costume that only he could get away with. He just gave me so many more interests and so much more curiosity about possibilities. Can you talk about that summer in Montana? in Montauk, in Andy's house. And that was because uh, Peter knew Andy very well. And <laughs> Andy just bought it and never spent a night there. And um, it was really roughing it, but it was in the sea. And I adored that. So from what I understand from the documentary, both of them just thought it would be a great idea to 
visit the Beals and have them be included in this project. Now, in the documentary that summer, Peter Beard says something about how they were making a film about the East Hamptons and the shift in the Hamptons. But my sources show, and Lee herself said that it was originally going to be a film about her and Jackie growing up and her memories as a child. So I'm a little conflicted on that, but I guess I believe, obviously, directly from Lee that it was supposed to originally be about she and Jackie's lives. So a little more about actual Grey Gardens. It is a documentary about the Beals, who you learned a lot about last week, and their mansion. It was directed by Albert and David Mazels, and it was released in 1975 and shown at the Cannes Film Festival in 1976. So the Beals were actually introduced to these directors by Lee Radswell, who, as I just said, was in talks about the potential film of her life with Peter Beard, and then he brought in the Mazels. According to Lee, what happened was they were just absolutely enamored with the Beals and how eccentric they were, and kind of, they were like, no, we're going to go with talking about the Beals and not you, Lee. Sorry about it. I'm going to insert another clip from an interview with Lee talking about that process. It was in East Hampton, and it was my idea when Stash and I lived in England at Cherville to um, go back to East Hampton, which I had so much nostalgia about as a child, and um, have my um, extremely eccentric aunt be the narrator for my memories. Um, and she had a wonderful singing voice, um, and she, she'd say anything. Her imagination was quite extraordinary, and her daughter Edie, little Edie we always called her, um, was almost as eccentric. As a and child, she, was she eccentric? Even as a child, was she very eccentric? No, not at all. She graduated from Harvard. It was when her mother locked her up as her companion at Grey Gardens, and she never left East Hampton for 25 years. Uh, so I thought it would be a wonderful idea to go back there. I said, it'll take days, weeks to get into that house. They won't let us. And so right. Peter said, we'll get the Mazels because they have 16 millimeter cameras and the Beals won't be frightened of that. And the Mazels, I think, will be charmed by them. And the Beals were terribly attracted by the Mazels because they adore to have their picture taken. And they adored to scream at one another uh, constantly. And they said, listen, we don't want this to be an Edie narrating for you, for your nostalgia. We can really make something extraordinary out of this. Well, it took me weeks of drives from Montauk to East, their house in East Hampton to get them to um, open the door. And so one doesn't just knock on the door and have it opened? Even if oh, no, 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 no. You bang and you scream. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about analysis? No. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Sophia. Okay. <laughs> 
in preparation for the documentary, the Maisels spent a year getting to know the Beals, like an entire year. And the actual documentary was filmed over the course of six weeks after that deep clean that we talked about last week that was funded by Jackie. But it's very obvious when you're watching the film that there is evidence of just nasty living conditions throughout the film. So the point of the documentary, though, was to focus on the complexity of the relationship between Big Edie and Little Edie. It's pretty crazy to watch because on one hand, Little Edie's blamed her mother for ruining her life and tells her that all the time. She says she ruined her love life because she had apparently rejected a ton of proposals on Little Edie's behalf. And she talks multiple times in the documentary about wanting to flee to New York or Paris because she just feels like a prisoner. She made me leave the bar bazaar. Oh, well, I thought you'd been in New York long enough. You were getting lines in your but face. I didn't and you didn't want to leave. I was getting my big chance. Oh, no, you were not. That married man was not oh, going to give you any chance at all. You were not. I was going to get it. Well, you didn't get it. You missed out. I was oh, just no. getting oh, out so what you called now, a little you're wasting, you're wasting that thing on this because it's, it's just nuts. When she said I had to come home. Well, I home. thought you should come home. Well, anyway, she started high pressure for me to come back in March of 1952, and she kept it up until the end of July. On July 29th, well, I checked out, down, got on the train, New came York, back, and was never time. able to get back. It's very, uh, it's very uh, hot in New York on July 29th. But it's weird because so quickly after Lil Edie will just be so upset with her mother— they just shift and they're singing and dancing and eating ice cream in the bed and chatting and and it's just a very interesting dynamic. I was exhausted. I danced eight hours last night practicing the uh, the marching song. Great. My God, my muscles! I can't do it. I'm telling you, what am I gonna do? They're gone with this sort life. <laughs> <laughs> We all march together for love is behind. We all stand together, united we die. All march together for we love the land. It's the spirit of the MI. We all march together for life is <laughs> When they do that, that's when the plane goes by, see? So I'm doing the VMI marching song, which is a ground maneuver. Anyway, I gotta get it all coordinated in my mind. Hey, Mama, I'm working on my kids. You see, she doesn't want to eat anymore for that fat, so I have to sit in the Starbucks. How can I eat? I think I lost. I lost five pounds. Well, don't live with me. I want to eat. Will you eat some liver pate? You can't. It's not awfully good. Kitties. You put lemon with it, so. I may die with this diet. I don't like it at all. Don't do it. Have a sandwich. I think I got fat not wearing clothes for two years. Oh, that wasn't it. Oh, it was the quarts and quarts of ice cream. My bill was $171 just for ice cream. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've got to talk about, and. I'm going to actually insert two clips because one of them made me absolutely crack up and Jeffrey and I have quoted it multiple times since we watched it. I posted it on my Instagram as well. So I'll insert that little clip right here just because it's funny. What are you looking for, Edie? The thing I'm always looking for. What, lipstick? Good. Either my pants or my makeup. 
But what we have to talk about is Little Edie's fashion. So I'm going <laughs> to, I feel like I'm saying I will insert a clip over and over, but clips are fun. So it is what it is. I'm going to put another clip in here of her talking about one of the outfits that she had chosen to wear one day. This is the best thing to wear for the day. You understand. Yeah. Because I don't like women in skirts. And the best thing is to wear pantyhose or some pants under a short skirt, I think. Then you have the pants under the skirt. And then you can pull the stockings up over the pants underneath the skirt. Mm -hmm. And you can always take off the skirt and use it as a cape. So I think this is the best costume for the day. Okay. I have to think these things up, you know. Mother wanted me to come out in a kimono, so we had quite a fight. But what happened from her fashion being featured in this documentary was it apparently, like, massively inspired drag queens across America. It became a thing to dress like Little Edie. And Calvin Klein stated that he was inspired by her eccentric sense of style, which was actually the subject of a Harper's Bazaar piece in 1997. And... Mark Jacobs named a bag after her. I've already talked about all of their lives and everything, but I do want to mention that Big Edie said on her deathbed, like right before she passed away, that she had nothing more to say to anyone because she had said everything that she wanted to say in the documentary. She felt like she had gotten all of her words out in Grey Gardens. So let's talk a little bit about the after effects of the documentary. It actually received extensive criticism. Some people suggested that the Beals, who were two super vulnerable individuals, obviously, had been exploited for the purposes of making the film, which they had agreed to because, as we spoke about before last week, they had no money. But they did make profits from the documentary in the end. I do want to include that. That was one end of the spectrum, and then other people just absolutely praised the film, suggesting that the honest insight into these lives symbolized a celebration of just personal identity regardless of society's standards. Because one of the things that was really heavily mentioned in the beginning of that summer, which again, highly recommend you watching before Grey Gardens. And if you haven't seen it yet, even if you've seen Grey Gardens, go back and watch it. But one of the things that they talk about is how East Hampton had changed so much over time. It had just kind of become this like bougie place. And um, some of the zest of East Hampton was lost. So a lot of people just really loved this honest look at these two grown women and their eccentric, wild, interesting lives in this mansion in East Hampton. And they didn't care what anybody thought around them. In fact, they thought it was ridiculous that the health department came. They thought that was an invasion of privacy. They thought that it was no one's business because it was their home, however they live. So it's a really interesting look at these two women. Grey Gardens has since actually been adapted into a Tony Award-winning Broadway show, and it was the first musical based on a documentary in history. It's also been adapted into a television film starring Drew Barrymore, who I love, which was released by HBO in 2009, and I've got that on my watch list. I cannot wait to watch that one. I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow, so I'll probably watch it then. All that footage that was used in that summer, the documentary, was apparently hidden away by Lee in some form because she was angry that they had shifted the documentary. And it was unused completely, obviously, in Grey Gardens. But that footage of the Beals meeting with Lee for that summer was released in 2017. So it took a long time for them to actually get their hands on that footage and release it, which I think Peter Beard had had a big part in since he's narrating most of it. Also, unused footage from the actual Great Gardens documentary was released as part of another documentary called The Bills of Great Gardens in 2006. Now, in 2010, the documentary was chosen to be preserved by the Library of Congress, which has categorized the film as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. As you have heard from this back-to-back -back episode about The Bills and Great Gardens, they are iconic. 
This film is iconic, and it's just one more facet of the Bouvier-Kennedy family that is so culturally relevant, so widely watched, so intriguing, and I'm so glad that I got to see it and learn about this alongside you guys. And you guys taught me a lot, too. I got a lot of DMs about it. I really appreciate it. Um, It's been a really fun couple episodes. All right, guys, that's all I've got for you today. Make sure you are subscribed for next week's episode. It's a really fun one. I had a conversation with number one New York Times bestselling author Emily Giffen about her newest book, Meant to Be, that was inspired partially by John and Carolyn's love story. And it is an incredible book. She's an incredible author, too. Her first novel, Something Borrowed, was actually made into one of my favorite movies. So um, it was a really fun conversation with her. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on that episode that will come out next week. Also, I will still put the link in the description of this episode to purchase Jackie and Me by Lewis Bayard. Natalia Molina and myself are going to talk about it. We're recording on August 1st to recap the book, and that episode will be out that next week. So go ahead and read it. Be ready for the chat about it. It's a really good book so far. I'm loving it. I've got some more to go. Like I said, I'm going to be flying and traveling a little bit, so I will probably be finishing it while I'm on my trip, and I'm really stoked to talk about it. Also, a lot of planning has continue to occur for the 100th celebration. I have got so much lined up. It's going to be so much fun. I've got my team working on it along with me. And yeah, you just, you just don't want to miss it. Just go on and mark it on your calendar so you are able to watch on August 20th, the 100th episode extravaganza. All right, guys, I hope you have a great week and I will talk to you soon. Come on and vote for Kennedy. Vote for Kennedy. Keep America strong. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.